We're so glad you're here on this incredible Easter Sunday morning. What a beautiful day that we have. And as uh, many of you know, right after the service uh, today, uh, there'll be an Easter egg hunt for the kids that are over in WB Kids right now. And this church was so incredibly generous. I mean, we got more Easter eggs donated. It was, it was unbelievable. I'm saying so. Uh, so parents, if you've got a parent over in WB Kids, they're going to be uh, high, you know, hyped up on sugar for like at least three weeks or four weeks <laughs> after today. I'm sorry, but we're just so delighted that you're here, and, and we are celebrating um, the depth of the hope that we have in Christ because of, because the resurrection did change everything for us. And, uh, and before we really can deeply understand the significance of the hope that we have, for most of us, we've had to experience some hopelessness, some brokenness, some powerlessness in our life. And uh, so we're going to try to uh, give you the opportunity to go there so that you can identify with all that the disciples and the, Christ, the followers of Christ were experiencing um, you know, on that second day leading into now the third day you will. So if you would, uh, turn with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 7, and we're going to begin to read this morning from verse 17 together. So if you have your Bible, turn there or get out your smartphone and your app or whatever it is, or, uh, or we will have the words on the screen for you in just a moment. We are going to do things a little differently this morning um, because in a few minutes, Chad Bailey, our new associate, is going to come and he's going to help us unpack this text a little bit, and uh, so we're going to share some time this morning, and I want you to have a chance to hear him and and uh, and to uh, to experience uh, you know the the gifts that God has given him, and so we've uh, we've kind of worked this out. It's going to be different, right, Chad? But we're glad that you're here. Um, now, as we move toward this text, I'm, I'm I'm aware that I'm in a room full of hopers. I'm in a room full of hopers. We are all hopers. We cannot live without hope. Nothing gets done in the world, according to Martin Luther, without hope. Nothing happens and nothing gets done without hope. Now, there's another wonderful quote that I have loved for many years. It's been around for decades. Maybe you've heard it, but I traced it down to its original author, to the, to the first guy who had this idea, and it was an American sociologist by the name of, of uh, Dr. Lewis Mumford. And here's the quote. I love this. A man can live 40 days without food, three days without water, and eight minutes without air, but only one second without hope. Without hope. And our text this morning raises the the question for us. We are a room full of hopers, but where is your hope anchored? Where is that hope securely fastened? Is it in things or something, or is it in Someone. So let's read the text, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning with verse 17. And so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this 
as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. I'd really like for you to try to revisit, go if you would in in your mind to that place where you encountered that sense that things were so out of control and hopeless for you. When dreams were dashed, when the bottom just literally dropped out for you, when all was seemingly lost, metaphorically speaking, you were totally at the mercy of the wind and the waves. I can't read this text in Hebrew without going back in my mind you know, to a moment in time where I experienced something of that. I, I fell in love with sailing when I was a student, and, and, and I answered an ad, a want ad, and I bought an old sailboat, and I mean an old sailboat, for 200 bucks. And I thought I got a great deal. And the key word there is thought, you know. And I, and I began to, to enjoy sailing. I wanted to share it with all my friends. And so one, you know, bright spring day, blustery day, I'm sitting on the third floor of, you know, of the, you know, the liberal arts building there in college in English literature, and I am not paying attention to the lecture not whatsoever. I am looking out the window at the tops of those trees on the third floor, and they are just, they are swaying in the wind. There's this, there's this constant 15, 20 mile an hour wind, and all I'm thinking about is I've got a dilemma here. I've got, I'm, I'm conflicted. Do I go to the library after class and do the research on my term paper, which is due in a week? Or do I head to the lake? Library, lake. Library, lake. I turned to Leroy Garris, my classmate sitting there, my friend, and I shared my dilemma with him, and he quickly responded, wow. I've never been sailing before, but I would sure learn to love. I would love to learn how. Class ended. You know where we went. Two hours later. Two hours later, I'm giving Leroy some lessons and all the basic maneuvers of sailing. And we're on a reach headed up the the middle of Benbrook Lake on the west side of Fort Worth. It's a beautiful day. And we're catching this, this incredible kind of northwesterly wind off of our shoulders, enjoying a beautiful sunshine, when all of a sudden the wind just sort of shifted. Sort of an ominous kind of shift, if you will. Can you relate? Have you ever felt that sudden ominous sort of shift in the wind in your life? maybe in a relationship or the company, the boss comes in and announces that they're going to restructure once again and that those changes are going to affect probably you and it's kind of an ill wind 
Or, or maybe you get that call from the doctor's office that the test results are in, but they want you to come in for a consultation. And the wind shifts. That's what it was like. I remember it. I haven't forgotten this day. I haven't forgotten Leroy Garrison. I haven't forgotten this day. Because it's indelibly imprinted in my mind. You see, suddenly there was this shift and the sail just bounced a couple of times the, and, it, and it shook and it emptied out of air. And then there was stillness. And I think the stillness was for probably only four or five seconds. But it seemed like an awfully long time. And then, then, then suddenly a 90-degree shift in the wind. And, and within minutes, the wind was much, much stronger. And I brought the bow of the little boat around, and that's when we saw it. Leroy and I looked up, and, and there was this giant wall cloud in the distance. Dark foreboding. It seemingly had just swallowed up the, the sun and everything was beginning to get much darker rapidly, mid-afternoon. And then it was an angry cloud with flashes of lightning all around it coming from the south, up from the southwest and moving toward us probably at 50 to 60 miles an hour. And we knew immediately we had to get off of that lake ASAP. And so we turned tail and we tried to, to run with, you know, and back toward that boat launch, which was at this point now several miles away. And the wind just began to, you know, and, and the, white, the white caps began to kick up and just batter this little worn out sailboat. And we fought it for about 15 to 20 minutes. And I began to think maybe, just maybe, we were going to make it back to land safely. And then suddenly, I couldn't steer the boat. And I looked back. And the transom, the brass fittings that hold the steering, the, the rudder in place on that little boat were giving way. The screws just literally were being stripped out by the stress against that, the side of, a, of that little boat. And, and, and the, the rudder just literally popped up, you know, popped out. And I grabbed it and saved it in the storm. But we couldn't steer anything anymore. And Leroy and I, we looked at each other, and we didn't say anything because we didn't have to say anything. But there was fear all over our faces because we knew we were in deep weeds, and the storm was now upon us. So if you can picture that, you know, 50, 55 mile an hour winds, rain that is literally driving sideways, these, these white caps, three, four foot high, were just were just washing over us. The cockpit, the cockpit of that little boat was now full of water. There was thunder and there was lightning all around us. And I, I quickly pulled the mast up out of its socket and laid it on the deck and wrapped the sheet rope around it to try to hang on to it in the midst of, of that storm because I didn't want to get struck by lightning and I thought that was going to happen at any, any moment. We were totally at the mercy of the wind and the waves. And in the driving rain and with lightning flashing, we could, we, we could see exactly where we were headed. The wind was blowing us sideways. And within minutes, that little ship 
crashed onto the sharp granite boulders of Benbrook Dam. Nothing we could do. Hopeless situation. Ever been there? Maybe it happened suddenly. Maybe hope was just eroded over time and and finally you could deny it no further and you had to accept the reality that everything you were dreaming and hoping for was lost. This is where the disciples are that Sunday morning. One of my favorite texts is found in Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. It's one of the stories of that Sunday. Picking up in verse 13, and perhaps you remember this story. It says, there were two of them that were going to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were getting out of Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. And he went with them. He began to walk with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? You ever notice how many times Jesus comes with a question, even when he already knows the answer? Just wants to know if we get it, the significance of what's going on. What is this conversation that you're having? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he, that is Jesus, said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and before all the people. And now our chief priests and the rulers, they delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had We have no hope, they say. That's all been dashed to pieces, driven by the wind and the waves upon the rocks. Perhaps you've been there. Let's see if we can help you to get into touch with the depth of that feeling, of what it feels like to be hopeless. Hope uh, and hopelessness as well, I think, has its, its degrees. And so we hear a story of uh, the loss of an entire afternoon. What began is beautiful. We, we heard the story of uh, the loss or the apparent loss of, of uh, a Savior, a Messiah, a, 
an anointed one that would redeem God's people. Um, we hear a, a young woman's story who maybe we can relate with in, in pockets and in pieces. Um, and so my, my job and, and the reason we show up and worship this morning, because the story does have an upswing, right? The story gets better from here. But it's interesting that, that regardless of the, the degree of hopelessness, there, there's kind of the similar structure and makeup of, of hopelessness, right? It begins with uh, an ideal picture in our mind uh, of how things should be based on everything I'm doing, or, or at least a, a picture of what I sure hope happens based on what I, what I value and what I desire, right? That ideal picture. And then uh, next what happens in this, this theme of hopelessness is the fact that something happens that I can neither forecast or control, You've been there? And, uh, and so all of a sudden, this, this picture of, of what is ideal and what could and should be, uh, with no uh, preventative measures of my own, nothing I ever could have done about it, it gets ruined, and then which leads to kind of the last phase of this, this hopelessness feeling or reality, and that is this question that pops into my mind, what do I do next? What can I possibly do next? I, I don't have solutions in my mind. I don't have the ability in my hands to do anything about uh, the fact that this situation, uh, where I thought I was headed, what I wanted to happen, was ruined by this thing, which I couldn't control, and now I literally, I've got nothing. Uh, that's kind of the makeup of, of hopelessness. Um, I, I, and when we read this story of, of the two men in Luke, because that's at least one of the stories that we're going to kind of uh, finish and complete and see redeemed together this morning, uh, we see that, that hope is brought back by a really interesting set of circumstances. If you have your Bibles and you turn back into the, the book of Luke, uh, chapter 24, let's pick up with these two guys because it seems like whenever we are over there on that end of, of the, the, the hopelessness structure going, what, what, what could I possibly do next? Because that's the point, if you've been there, that's the point where you go, I, I literally don't have any answers, and it seems like the story ends, and what we celebrate this morning and what we continue talking about, this service, this worship experience doesn't end after that video. It doesn't end after verse 24, and it seems like whenever we have no answers, God's at his best. And this foreign, uh, what this is, it, it was once very real, but this now foreign idea of hope is now kind of revived because God begins to do something that, that we can't with solutions and abilities. So if we pick up in verse 25 and read the rest of the story, it says, Jesus, again, walking with these two men on the way to Emmaus, he said to them, after saying Jesus died, and they were sad, are you the only visitor in town? Did you not get the memo? Do you not subscribe to the Plano Courier? Like, did you not hear what happened? And he said, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophet, prophets have spoken. What, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, but they didn't know he was the Christ. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village that they were going to. He acted as if, again, still kind of messing with them a little bit, as if he was going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Say, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. And this is... The upswing. I don't know what kind of practical jokester or prankster you are. I'm not sure if you're the guy or the girl who does a prank and like lets it ride and like waits till like you lose a friendship. You ever been there? I'm the guy that can't wait more than I'm like, okay, I'll tell you. Okay, calm down. Don't look in there. Don't don't open the door. Don't do that. Like I I just can't let it last. You've got to crack at some point, right? This is the point where Jesus cracks and he allows their eyes to be opened. 
and uh, see him for who he is. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he, looked, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And all of a sudden, it's like a familiar scene. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment, he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did, our, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? That was Jesus that we were talking to. Verse 33, and they rose from that same, that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them all gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. We have proof. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them as he broke uh, the bread. Here's what I love about them being at the place where they would say, I've got no answers, I've got no solution. Our Messiah, our, our chosen, our anointed one, the one prophesied about, the one that, that we spent the past three, three and a half years really hoping this thing shapes up and, sh- and, and works out like we want it to. And this was the guy, and we were worshiping him all week leading up to the fact that they, they killed him, which was really strange, but he kind of went to the cross in a really purposeful way. And all of a sudden, here it is Saturday, nothing's happening. Sunday morning, nothing's happening. But all of a sudden, their hope was revived when they realized that Jesus was alive. So the fact that they had no answers, they were at the end of their story. It's like the video clip ends, and then all of a sudden, everything changes. And what we see there is that their hope was properly placed in Jesus Christ. Their hope is a people, that God would redeem uh, God's people. If you look back in history, the, the Israelites were under oppression for many, many, many years. And there was this promise, this hope that they had of a Messiah Uh, redeeming, bringing God's people back to them and freeing them from their oppressors. Little did they know at the time it was more of a spiritual oppression to sin and he would later get to the whole uh, uh, rule the world thing. Uh, But it came in a way they didn't recognize. And so many lost hope when he was in the tomb. And the thing you show up, I show up to talk about, we show up to worship and celebrate the fact that the tomb is now empty and with Jesus alive, all of a sudden their hope is, is restored. Their hope dies with his death, and now it's, it's risen again with his life. Um, if he was who he says he was, now that he's alive, you kind of start working backwards in your mind, and you're going, okay, that means he was, in fact, who he said he was. That means that everything he did, he did as he said he was, as the son of the living God. And all of a sudden, we know the rest of the story, don't we? We see the church spread, and we see churches planted, and from there... We see lots of persecution. This was a time in the early church where it was not safe or comfortable to be a believer. Um, If you can just imagine a world where politically and even spiritually with the uber-religious, Jesus started a revolution that these guys, they they were radicals. And so it was not safe, it was not comfortable, uh, in, in part along with Jesus' great commandment. Maybe you've heard it. Go into the ends of the world, right, and make disciples. Baptize them. Like, go all the way to Texas and, like, make disciples. Like, that was, that was the great commandment. Another part of that, that really helped that I think the Lord allowed to spread the church this far is this thing called persecution. Many of them stood up to persecution, said, burn me at a stake, uh, put me on a cross too. You can flip me upside down because I don't deserve to be crucified like my Savior was. True stories like that. Many ran for fear of their life in order to preserve the ability to keep preaching the gospel. Many had to do church in secret. This, this idea of, of, of persecution, it did a lot for the church. It did a lot of good. It looked on the surface like it was all bad news, but it forced the church to spread. And believers would associate themselves 
uh, as believers, and, and, and it would be very symbolic. Uh, we think of the cross or an ichthus, maybe the fish, uh, to be a symbol of Christianity. Uh, and those things might have progressed later, certainly the cross much later, because you didn't want that obvious of a sign. And though the cross was common, Jesus dying on the cross, and you calling yourself a group based on the cross, you're going you're gonna to go to Jesus, and you're going to be crucified. So they had a hidden, uh, one of the earliest signs or symbols for the early church was an anchor. They had this idea of our security, our anchor being in Jesus. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. How can I securely uh, orient my life to something that is better than this, that is more than this. And they all of a sudden live their life with a purpose of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ with a view of heaven, knowing that, man, one day it's going to be better, right? If you read the words of, of martyrs, there, there's, there's, this, there's this undercurrent, this theme of, of what I do now, and if you force me to give my life up for it, I will do it because what is next is better, and Jesus is enough. And there's this perspective of heaven that they had. If we read in Hebrews, the, the text that Dave wrote or, or read a minute ago, he didn't write it. The text that, that Dave, he's a great man, but no. Um, the text that, that he read, the last two verses really make a lot of sense of this idea of hope. And it really helps us understand why they would etch anchors on, on, uh, on rocks, and, and this, it would bring us back to this time frame, and that would, that would uh, associate themselves with, with the church. And the writer of Hebrews, uh, very powerfully in just two verses, helps us understand that. It's not just for them, it's for us. The picture of the anchor is for us. It's a context we have to understand in their day that really makes us go, man, is that the kind of hope I have in Jesus? Let's read the last two verses again. It says, we have this, this hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, the presence of God behind the curtain, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a, some of your versions in your Bible say the word forerunner, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Uh, The imagery of an anchor is good enough, right? That we anchor our life in Jesus and we have a secure hope versus a lot of the other things we might anchor our hope in. It was referenced earlier, the things that, that, that the situations that we find like uh, normal everyday life, whether it's job or relationship, that we are a hoping people. And whether you know it, like it or, or feel like it or, or not, you are hoping in something. It's like this, this well-wishes, ambiguous, just kind of like grasping at things. Or you might even know, you know, this is what my hope is in. Either way, we have a hope in something. And so this, this story of, of an anchor and a forerunner, uh, it's almost enough just with the anchor. That, okay, Christ is our anchor. We take it out of the boat and we drop it. And it keeps us from rocking into other boats and crashing. It's not good enough. Uh, the writer of Hebrews goes on, and there, there's, a, there's a way that ships entered the harbor in this part of the world at this time of the world that, that really gives the complete picture of Jesus. This Greek word for forerunner, uh, it implies a military mode, whether it's a, a troop uh, or whether it's a ship or, or they're small, uh, more stealthy, agile boats. I won't call it a ship. And he goes, hey, if you want to park your ship in the harbor, you send a forerunner. And that little boat carries the anchor. Or it carries a rope to shore where there are massive stones and they bore holes in these stones and they connect the anchor or feed the rope through. And once that's on shore, the boat's not going anywhere. Then there's a crew on the other end of that rope that pulls the boat in shore. The forerunner, essentially, as a, as a combat unit, it's, it's, it was used then just to, to scout out the lands. And basically the idea here is the forerunner goes 
where the ship cannot. The little tactical boat goes where the massive boat can't. Uh, the writer at Hebrews continues in chapter 10 uh, and, and, and unpacks this idea of Jesus going before us and being the one in heaven as our anchor, our faith fed through uh, Uh, that of Christ, the person sitting at the right hand of God, and from heaven, he intercedes for us, Scripture says, and it's as if he's pulling us into heaven. That's the hope. That's the direction we're going. In Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 23, it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not anything we can do, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, it was broken, it was ripped, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us what? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our heart sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, the forgiveness of sin, the complete forgiveness of sin. Verse 23, I love this. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the picture here this morning and the picture that uh, that, that we want uh, in our minds is this this comparison, this juxtaposition from the, the lake that the story Dave told about the lake. Um, looked at his friend in fear. They didn't have an anchor, certainly not a forerunner. They were left there at the mercy of the wind and the waves, right? And this picture that we see in Hebrews of a massive ship being pulled in because a forerunner went where it could not go and it was pulled into the presence of God. And listen, that's the, that's the hope that the early church had. That's the picture they saw when they etched, drew, and, and looked at an anchor. And so the question is, being a, a room full of hopers, you can't help but do it. It's like breathing. Where's your hope? Because it's somewhere. Where's your hope? Because it's, it's somewhere. And this picture of a massive rock with holes bored into it on the shore is a picture of Jesus. If, if our hope is in Jesus, if it's well-placed in Jesus then the, the, the theoretical metaphor is that we can endure the waves of this life, right? We can, we can know that we're being pulled directionally toward heaven, something better, that we can stand the rocking of the boat because we know that we are anchored and it is sure and it is not moving. And whether it's stories that we hear on the screen, um, true life stories of real life situations, those waves are metaphors and the rope is a metaphor of our faith in Jesus, the anchor, the rock on the shore, not moving at all. And so next week, we're actually going to finish Ashley's story. And we're going to look at the, the flip side of that as she completes the rest of it and, and, and communicates to us that her hope in that situation would end up finding its, its, its place in Jesus and being the forerunner he is, doing what she could not do, doing what we cannot do in terms of our sin, living the perfect life, dying the perfect death. Here's the deal, you can't do that. I can't do that. And because he did, and because he now is risen and sitting at the right hand of God, that's where we are headed. And that's the perspective we have now, no matter what happens in our life. And so the question for, for us, the question for me is, is this, with, with the raising to life of Jesus, does that now raise your hope to life? Because we know that we have hope, uh, and it's a living hope because we have Jesus, and he's, he's living so where, where's your hope? Where's my hope? Um, a part of Ashley's story uh, will be a part of our, or the beginning of, of a new series called Keep Hope In. And this hope, uh, this living hope message is just kind of a, a teaser for this idea of, of practically speaking, where do we find our hope 
in Jesus. So let me pray for us this morning. We're going to sing about this hope that we have in Jesus. And that we'd invite you to, to be a part of this journey that we're going to look more practically, more specifically at what it means to put our hope in Jesus and watch him bring our hope uh, to life and give perspective of heaven. Let's pray.